Welcome, friends, to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. If you are a parent of an adolescent, of a young child, a teen, this is such an important conversation for you. My guest in this episode is Dr. Michael Malopsky. Dr. Michael is a good friend of mine. He's from Denver, Colorado, and uh, he's such a cool guy. He's got such a great history. He played college basketball, and he's just this fun, talented guy, but he's also a medical professional. He's a He was a pediatrician for a long time, still is a pediatrician. He has a private practice, but a couple of years ago, he opened up a center in Colorado called The Way Center, and the purpose of The Way Center was to try to give the attention to adolescents and their families who need a little bit more time, guidance, and diagnosis when it comes to their mental health issues. And in this conversation, we really get into what the role of a parent is for children in general, and especially if they have children who may be struggling with anxiety or any sort of uh, mental health, and especially during this time of COVID when we know all of these things have escalated. And Dr. Michael has just such great insight and wisdom and advice on so many things regarding dealing with parenting and dealing with building a family that will be strong enough to make to make it through these very, very uncertain times. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Michael. And without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Michael Malabsky. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. So I've got some exciting news to share with you before we begin today's episode. My new book is available. As you can hear, I'm pretty excited about it. It is called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life, and it is a guidebook to discovering your inner world and unique purpose. So this is a book that is filled with deep Jewish wisdom, Jewish mysticism. It's got psychology in there, thoughts from today's top thought leaders, my own personal experiences. And really, each chapter is filled with so much, so many practical tools and habits to reach self-mastery and to become the best version of ourselves. Uh, If you've listened to this podcast in the past, I've taught many times on this idea that we all have these four elements inside of us that are compared to fire, wind, water, and earth. And all of our inner struggles, all of the barriers that keep us from becoming our best versions can be boiled down to struggles that happen within each of those inner elements. So the book explores those in detail and really how to get past that and discover our unique purpose, our unique place in this world, because we all have one. So again, the book is called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. You can check it out on our website, Love Experience website, levx.org. You can check it out on the publisher's website, mosaicopress.com, or wherever Jewish books are sold. Just check it out because you'll enjoy it. It's called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. Read it, share it with the world, The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. Dr. Michael Malovsky, welcome. Thank you for having me. How's it going? 
Well, lovely. We're having a great summer. Well, every all summer is great in Colorado, so I encourage everybody to experience it. Yeah, we'll be there soon. We got going in a couple of weeks. So I know we're about to have a conversation that's probably pretty serious and somewhat heavy, but let's begin at least on a little bit of a light note. And okay. let's begin talking about TikTok for a moment. <laughs> now, I don't know if this is original here, but I want to dub you as the TikTok doc. Now, you are the only doctor that I know. I am, I am, I am one of many. I am one of the few pediatricians, I think, that is on, but um, I got started because, listen, I live with several TikTok experts, <laughs> and I realized that there's a much bigger audience. I just assumed that TikTok was 15-year-old girls, but in fact, there's a huge audience on TikTok that spans an enormous amount of uh, the demographic that I serve as a pediatrician, um, you know, young parents. So I started putting stuff up about, mostly about toddlers and babies and I got a huge response so clearly there's a wide audience on there for people who are interested in the kind of stuff that I put out and and it is a really good platform to not be overly serious if anyone's watched uh, you can check out my TikTok uh, Dr. Mike M on TikTok but it's a great way to address and make fun of kind of the ridiculousness of raising children that we all go through <laughs> and said it and I said it's a really cool 80s music which for me, is like, well, what else do you need? So, exactly. Now, uh, because this is audio, I, you know, I can't post any of them. But for all the listeners, Doctor Michael is a really, really good. He's a good dancer, and he whips out some of those eighty moves. A lot of those, what, what, what do they call the hand rolls? A lot of these, a lot of shoulder moves. A lot of waves, a lot of running man. Of <laughs> exactly. But he's good. He's good. And and I also want to use this opportunity to say to, to say that I've I had actually the privilege of being on stage together with uh, Dr. Michael together back probably was maybe 15 years ago when together we did a spoof of Greece. This was for a Jewish organization in Colorado <laughs> at their fundraising dinner. They did a spoof of Greece and uh, it was starring myself and Dr. Michael. And those were those were good times. And we really Really, we really showed the truth can dance slow-mo but it was actually three happy days kind of fusion sort of that's right yeah. uh, that's when i could still pass for being cool <laughs> me too <laughs> now because this is the empowered jewish living podcast you have you have a, a really cool story an amazing story and before we get into what you do now i think it would be really nice to give the listeners a little bit of a background about your story and i want to go back i just want to describe to the listeners michael malomsky six seven uh 240 pounds i believe and uh, so he's got that if you see him he doesn't have the body of the little doctor that you're expecting walking in with his glasses falling off of his nose uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The <laughs> so he's got the when he walks in, he looks like you know he looks like an athlete. He looks like a basketball player. Um, and uh, and uh, share with us a little bit about your journey from the college Division One basketball until where you are today, and especially a little bit of of where the Jewish growth uh, fell into that. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I grew up in suburban DC. Uh, my, uh, my wife and I are both from Potomac, actually. I went to Churchill High School, where I was the most mediocre basketball player in the history of Churchill High School, probably. Um, and I worked my way into 
getting uh, a spot on the uh, at University of Pennsylvania and worked very hard to land a spot on that team and played uh, four years at University of Pennsylvania. And uh, in that four, and between my freshman, my first and my second year, I grew a lot and I filled out a lot and I got a lot better. And I tried out and made the U.S. Maccabee team, the U.S. Maccabee team for the World Games, um, which is held in Israel every four years. So that was the 1989 Games. Um, the U.S. had won the gold medal in basketball four years before in the 1983, no, 80, uh, 85, sorry, 1985 Games. And there were several guys on that team. And that was my first trip to Israel. That was my first experience having basketball be a Jewish thing and not just um, not just uh, an athletic pursuit in and of itself, but combined with something about my Jewish identity. I, I went to, like a lot of people in suburban Washington, I went to Ben Israel, uh, you know, big conservative suburban synagogue. That was what, that was how my parents raised me. And, um, and sort of my bar mitzvah was kind of like my exit from anything to do with um, Yiddishkeit or Judaism at all. Uh, and then basketball became sort of my all-consuming sort of pursuit. And then Israel was the, uh, playing for the U.S. Uh, Maccabi team in 1989 with other Jewish players from around the country. And being in Israel for the first time was my first sort of uh, use of uh, basketball being a vehicle to something bigger and being a lot more aware of, of the Jewish part of who I am. And then uh, I, I finished uh, playing basketball at Penn. And uh, there's still actually a very grainy VHS video. So there's only one highlight that remains from my uh, career at Penn, but you can find it on YouTube. Uh, if, uh, if anyone's interested, it's very 90s. The shorts are very short, um, <laughs> uh, but there is, a, there is a video out there. And, um, and in between, um, and then I started uh, medical school at University of Maryland in Baltimore. By the way, we're going to post that link in the show notes because yeah. I, I want to see that. <laughs> yes, I'm sure everybody wants to see that. I hope it's a good one, not you like getting elbowed in the face or something. Like you have no, to do something meaningful on the court. It's actually throwing down a vicious dunk against Harvard. All right, okay. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, and uh, in between, uh, after finishing my first year, during my first year, I met uh, my now wife of 27 years. Um, we were both first year grad students. I was in medical school and she was in the, the uh, neuroscience program. And I had again tried out and again made the, the Maccabi team for the World Games. This was 1993, the very next World Games. I made that team again and went to Israel this time with the person who is uh, going to be my wife. And she was over there studying at the Whitesman Institute for her PhD program. And I was playing in the games. And when the games ended, she and I spent an extra two weeks in Israel together. And now the interesting thing about this is, is that my wife was born in Israel. She was born in Rehoboth and raised there until she was five years old and then moved to Washington, D.C. Um, this was one of the, her first times back in Israel since she was since she left. And we spent uh, two Shabbosim with her extended family, her mother's side of the family, who are, um, you know, they're from, you know, professionals, they live in Haifa. And that was our first exposure actually to, you know, kind of authentic Shabbat and, and that, and, you know, really authentic Torah, Jewish 
sort of household. And when we got home from that, we promptly got engaged and got married and started our own journey from there. We had an Orthodox wedding. We began our process of really becoming serious Balichuva at that point. And that then now we have seven children and two grandchildren and raise all of our children in a, you know, in a Shomer Shabbat Torah home. And, and now I have grandchildren have doing the same. So Amazing. Uh, that's kind of the short version. And I, in, 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 in there somewhere, I finished med school, finished residency, became a pediatrician, moved to Denver, Colorado, and have been in Denver for 21 years now. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about you playing basketball and, you know, we, we've had a couple of times there, there was a couple of years ago. Oh, it was more than a couple of years ago. It was probably a little bit over a decade ago. Remember the Jewish Jordan, Tamar, what was his name? Tamir Goodman, the Jewish Jordan, which, you know, he didn't end up going pro. And then I think that we've had, I think now on the Washington Wizards, I think they just had an Israeli Jewish player, uh, you know, join. And I think he had, you know, a decent rookie season, but we mm -hmm. haven't yet had that Jewish NBA pro superstar that, you know, we're, well, we're waiting I, for it. <laughs> not since Annie Shays and Ernie Grunfeld. I think they were the last two. They were the last <laughs> two, right. It hasn't happened recently. Amari Stoudemire. When the, but that was after he was already gone. <laughs> yeah, can't claim him right now. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, all right, fine. So that was basketball, and uh, and uh, it sounds like it has been an amazing, amazing journey. So you got into med school, and now let's jump to your most recent project, which sure. is the Way Center. Now, again, you are a pediatrician, right? Correct. So you're a pediatrician. So you're not in or at least prior to what you're doing now with the way center you pr prior to this you were not necessarily in and maybe i just don't understand the field well enough but you wouldn't consider yourself a mental health professional so how did it come about for you to start the wh why don't you tell us a little bit about the way center well and how it came about for you to start it well i you know i would not have considered myself a mental health professional until i became a parent and then unfortunately uh, or fortunately i think every parent has to be more of a mental health professional by virtue of, I think, what parenting requires of us. It requires a lot of uh, self-evaluation. It requires a lot of personal growth. It requires a lot of facing your weaknesses and, and, and improving on yourself. And, but you're right, professionally, I wouldn't have considered myself uh, a mental health professional. I spent the first 15 years of my pediatric career as a pediatric emergency and uh, hospital specialist. So I really just worked in acute care. I was moonlighting in a pediatric office, but I didn't really spend a lot of time on uh, behavior and mental health, except in my own house. And then when I, uh, seven years ago, I went full time into private practice. I took over uh, and opened up my own business and got out of being a full time hospital based pediatrician. And what struck me is how much pediatricians are mental health, um, we're mental health advocates, we're mental health evaluators, because parents come to you as the first line of defense when they have concerns about the child's well-being, whether it's physical or emotional uh, or behavioral. And um, you know, very quickly, I had to get very much more comfortable with that idea because you know, when you work just in the ER, you're, you really not aren't dealing with that at all. And 
And then I think 2000, starting at around 2011, and for a lot of your audience, especially if your parents won't be a surprise, we started seeing an alarming rise around the country in issues with adolescent mental health, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, suicidal thoughts and suicidal attempts, suicide attempts. And that really since 2011 has been pretty much a straight line uphill in terms of rates. Um, and I, I began noticing it in terms of my practice. Well, I'd say starting about two or three years ago, the, uh, the, the number, the sheer number of calls coming in, asking, demanding our time to help families that are struggling with mental health issues was becoming overwhelming. We just didn't have time or space. I mean, a, a pediatrician's office is filled with crying babies and sick toddlers for the most part. And a whole day, we just you don't have places to spend the time to that it takes to really deal with this. But um, I started my journey in terms of doing a more for myself on this two years ago when I began to get serious about look at someone as people are expecting this from me, access to other, I'm the most accessible um, professional for most of these families. So I, I personally started becoming uh, certified in addiction and now I'm certified to manage opioid addiction in teenagers especially. And I took an entire year long fellowship course in uh, mental health to really increase uh, my skill set there and have been uh, considering opening up over the last few years, opening up a separate clinic that just deals with the adolescent mental health. Because the one thing I learned during my own um, enhanced mental health education when it came to adolescence is that you need time. The most valuable thing you can give these families is the ability to spend time with them, to really be able to listen, to really be able to Un, um, you know, unpack the complexity of what's going on in the child's life and, uh, and at home and really, and, and then make an impact, but you can't do that in 15 minutes. And then COVID hit. Can I and, just push pause yeah. for just rewind a little bit? I'm just curious because you threw out that 2011, suddenly, you know, there was yeah. a lot more. I'm just wondering, was that just because there were more studies happening then or did something happen? Did the tide somehow turn in 2011? You know, there's that, no one really knows. Um, there's some they, people have made some interesting inferences. The most interesting of which is that 2011 also was the time when cell phone ownership crossed more than 50 percent of the population. Smartphone ownership. Oh, wow. Okay. So, who who knows if that's the re, if that's just uh, a notable interesting detail or if that's causative in any way, but. It, it just be, it, it's just be, simply became much more on the radar because the numbers abruptly changed so far above what had been considered the normal background rate for, you know, reported rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal. Is that when social media also became a big thing? I jumped in social media a little bit later than that. Well, actually, not too much later. But one second, I'm guessing that I first remember hearing about Facebook. I was living in Israel and like... 2008, 2009, and I think that's when I first learned about Facebook. I don't know when it was founded, but is that when social media started? I think, I think I, I, not, I'm not an expert in that history, but I can tell you that around 2011, when uh, smartphone technology, smartphone ownership crossed more than half the population, there was an, a huge abrupt jump in, how, in the absorption in social media, okay. uh, especially for young people, no question. Right, right, right. 
Okay, so I'm sorry. Yeah, so so jumping back in, so I, I set you off course. So COVID. Oh, yeah. So then you know COVID hit, and then about six to seven months into the COVID year, we began the the, the volume of calls and and the um, severity and the levels of I would say uh, concern and sometimes panic in some of these families in terms of their children's mental health problems became overwhelming. I mean, absolutely nonstop. And that was the impetus for my wife and I, who, are, who worked on this idea together, to sit down and go, we have to open this, we have to do something. Um, I'd spent a lot of time, obviously, working on the process and what we can do to help. So we created and launched in January of 2020, um, the Way Center, which was a clinic specifically focused on being an accessible resource for evidence-based care for adolescent mental health issues and addiction. And um, you literally started right as COVID was well, like January. So COVID would have been really the, the previous spring, like March, April of the of 2019. Right. So right. like half a year into it, um, we, we opened it up. And we, we uh, created hours that are very family friendly. We try to see patients in the evenings and on weekends so as not to interfere. Uh, to, it makes it much more likely people are going to get there because it, it doesn't interfere with school. It doesn't interfere with activities. It doesn't interfere with work. So all the reasons that people tend not to be able to uh, show up, we, we, we took those barriers away. We have hour-long appointments or even more, depending on the need. And since January, we've really seen a huge um, amount of people taking advantage of what we offer. And the, we've been seeing great success. Uh, we've both been really surprised at just being available and, and focusing on the whole person. You know, we're not just here. We're not just focusing on handing out prescriptions. We're focusing on everything about an adolescent's world that is compromising their emotional resilience and their mental health. Yeah. And um, we've we've been really happy with how we've been doing, and we hope to be able to expand it even more this year. Right. So let me ask you something, because you had mentioned earlier that when you were doing purely pediatrics, you didn't have enough time and the family really needed time. And you said you're the first line of defense. So can you paint the picture? What does that look like? Because I'm sure like with anything, you know, as a parent, I know my kid catches a cold and we're like, oh my God, you know, what's wrong? And we're, we're going crazy. So how does a parent come in when they start suspecting, one second, something is not right. What are they seeing? And like, how do they present it to you? Lots of different ways. And the one thing is that teenagers are really good at hiding how they feel, especially to their parents. So most parents become aware of it when there's some major crisis situation or setback. School is a huge, huge place where parents become aware that there's been an ongoing problem. All of a sudden, they, they hear that grades have really fallen off. Their, their child's being suspended or kicked out of school because their child is possess something they shouldn't some usually substance related uh, or they start noticing things around the house you know your child's not the same person they were four months ago they're way more withdrawn they're way more isolated they don't do the things that they enjoy doing they spend way more time alone either sleeping or on a screen um, this is just and a lot of parents like to rationalize oh it's just teenage stuff oh it's normal um, 
Yeah, I, 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 I have to jump in just to say, yes, I'm just coming as a, from just my coaching. That is what, where the confusion is. The confusion yeah. is when is it just teenage stuff? Because teenagers do have stuff. And, and a lot of parents also in my coaching, they say, well, I, how, I don't know if this is just teenage stuff or if this is abnormal. You know, teenage stuff and you and I both, I have, I've raised or in the middle of raising seven teenagers and you, <laughs> so teenager stuff is a lot of changes in, in their emotional life, a lot more volatility, a lot more ups and downs, but you know, there still should be in a, in a healthy situation, a certain amount of emotional resilience, certain ability to overcome setbacks, feel how they feel express it in a way that they express it, but then move forward. And what we're seeing is a real loss of that. The emotional resilience piece is really gone. And you have these kids who experience a setback and they have no reserve and they are simply, they, they fall off a cliff and they can't pull themselves back. So parents, you know, but most of the time it doesn't come to the parents' attention. This is not anything from a you know, assigning blame to parents. It's just that teenagers function this way until something really negative happens that that draws the parents' attention. Something really negative at school that's way out of character, something really negative at home, or the child says something that's very, very scary to the family with regards to very dark thoughts, perhaps self-harming thoughts. You know, it, it, that's when it tends to it come to attention because before that, kids can compensate by hiding it really well. Yeah. And I, I shared this with you in our last conversation that we had, but in, in a previous coaching client, um, the client was a woman. She expressed to me that her her ex-husband found in in his bathroom that the child when when he had when the child was over, uh, they found a uh, something which indicated that the child was considering harming themselves. Um, and again, and and even at that point, the parents were still like, "Is this just normal teenage stuff?" Um, you know, and and I was very taken aback. But it does seem that it goes so far that parents really don't know that even to the point that their children are 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 in in an extreme place are still wondering like, "Is this normal teen stuff?" You know, that was, that's a great point. Shlomo, and what I, the way I would respond to that is, is that um, as we have delved deeper and deeper into this now multi-year, I'm going to say crisis of adolescent mental health issues, we are not just experiencing a crisis of adolescent mental health. This is a parenting crisis that most of the kids who are now going through this are being raised by either, you know, Gen X parents, I think most of them are in their 40s, or you would call them either elder millennials or, or, or young Gen Xers. And I, I think that a lot of us who are in that category were raised by families of uh, parents of the baby boomers or you know, who were themselves raised by greatest generation. Not a lot of emotional vocabulary, not a lot of self-awareness when it came to our inner and emotional lives and a really difficult time recognizing it in other people and, and having a vocabulary around it. And then what it, what's become really difficult is, is that a lot of these things, a lot of parents have not dealt with their own, their own anxiety, their own depression, their own anger issues, whatever it is that goes along with being 
in that in this group of people and raising kids. And then now you see something that is clearly needs to be addressed. I, um, I see more and more parents reacting the way you you described, just ah, uh, you know, minimizing, and and because one, they don't themselves have a comfortable vocabulary to be able to even open the conversation and address it, don't know what to say. And two, it does create a lot of discomfort because when you are dealing with that in your house, there is no possible way that a parent can avoid dealing with what they need to work on themselves and their own weaknesses and their own shortcomings as people, which all of us have, by the way, doesn't exist that you don't have them. And, but that's very hard and that's very uncomfortable. And it's way easier to simply hope that your kid will get over it and move on. And you won't have to uh, address that very uncomfortable thing without yourself, because inevitably when you have a child going through this, you're going to have to figure out how you had, what your pardon is. And it's not assigning blame. It's just the truth that inevitably there's, there is an interaction. There is a, there's, there's things that you need to work on and help to help your child. You have to improve in order to help your child improve. Is that, is that something you found consistently across the board that when a child is going through some sort of, when they're going into that dark place, it's opening up a lot of wounds, un, undealt with issues undealt with in the parents. In the home, in the parents and in the home. In the relationship. Very often, yeah. Now, a lot of, there's also a lot of resistance. There's obviously that place of, even once the parent acknowledges that there's an issue, very often they find that the child themselves becomes now resistant to getting any help. And then often the reaction of the parent will be, well, if I try to force my child to to get help, then I might actually end up, you know, making it worse. How, How do you deal with that? Great question. Um, I tell parents all the time that you cannot make anybody do anything. That's after a certain age. I think even after the age of like two, I think it's really impossible for a parent to actually make anybody do anything. The way that a parent can create an environment where their child will perhaps do something along the lines that the parent themselves wants them to do, whether it's, let's say, doing well in school or getting help for a concerning problem, is based on how the child perceives the strength of their relationship and that they do it because they want, they value the relationship. So um, this is, I'm actually coaching more and more families about this way earlier before you're, you have necessarily a, a crisis in the house, but Um, You know, all of us were raised in this version of parenting, which has been labeled external control, meaning if you don't do X, then I am going to do Y, whatever that is. And um, that clearly for, and and listen, for some kids, I have, I have at least one of my kids, it really doesn't matter what parenting style she would have experienced. She's just fine all the time. Like she has zero needs from us. And I have other kids who are very sensitive and have different needs. And and that style does not work for a lot of kids, especially kids who are sensitive or struggling emotionally. There needs to be something called, um, you know, there's this idea of control theory, which is that parents have to get better at focusing, at moving the the power focus more towards the child and focusing more on the quality of your relationship by removing things like, 
you know, this constant sort of harassing, haranguing, and and uh, interventionist approach and idea that you know you have to do everything that I need or things will be removed, and much more focusing on how do I build a pod, a relationship so my child wants to do things that build that relationship back. And it's easy to say; it's a lot harder to do. Uh, we could have a whole show just on that. Right. But right. Um, but that's but in, in short, Shlomo, when you, when you have a situation, you have to focus on how I as the parent can help this situation by creating a relationship that my son or my daughter wants to preserve and then wants to find help. And sometimes kids are so are in such a bad place, even if they say, I, I refuse, I don't want to go. They still need to go right. because they themselves don't recognize how bad they are. Yeah. And I know you said we can have a whole show on it. And again, you know, the question is how deep we can go in. But I, I also want to acknowledge that at some point you get into a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, because on the one hand, you'll say, well, you know what, the child uh, needs help and it's going to be difficult to mend our relationship before the child gets help. But you're right. also saying, but sometimes you need to mend the relationship to get the child the help that they need. And I just want to say, like, in my own relationship with my kids. So, you know, I obviously you always want to try to keep it on the right path. And then sometimes you notice it varying veering off for whatever reason something is going wrong for whatever reason maybe there was a string of stressful things and now we're not having you know loving conversations we're a little bit more quiet the dinner table is not as much fun as it should be but you're close enough you took the wrong exit you know you just you, you make a u-turn you get back on whatever it is and and even that's hard even that's hard but as a parent you take responsibility and you say okay i don't like what happened here let's get back on track right but sometimes over here we're entering into a situation where the relationship has gone so there's so much pain so far off course and sometimes you know for a parent they're just like how what what is even the first step to try to get this relationship right. back on track? We are so far afield. So you know, I, I'd like to I'd like to go back to a lot of what you just talked about because in so many of the families I see, and this is I'm generalizing. There for this for sure doesn't apply to every single family, but a very large number. Th- there's almost always a a one parent or both parents that have adopted the stance that. Um, I refuse to examine or evaluate how I respond to whatever needs you're expressing or however you're responding to me. And it becomes a very authoritarian sort of relationship. And then that, and when a child feels, especially an adolescent, feels unheard and feels that they're not understood, they withdraw further. And they are less and less interested in, in bringing you into their world or how they feel. And I, I see so many parents who are so hyper-focused on being respected, or at least that perception of being respected and honored in a certain way by the way their child talks or engages them, and they react so strongly all the time and have and are unable, unable to do what you just said is like, you know what, the mo- to be able to sit down with your kid, look them in the face and go, you know how I reacted when you did X, that was not right. I can do better. And I really think, and and I'm really sorry for how that made you feel. When I started doing that with my kids, I tell you walls came down on so many levels to be able to be vulnerable to your child, which immediately shifts the power structure. When you can sit down with your child and say, 
what I did there that made you really upset because I was upset, that was wrong and I am sorry. If when you did, that has, that's like a nuclear bomb that you dropped on your kid in terms of, you know, breaking down barriers and having them feel seen and feel heard. Now, it's, but I see so many families and parents, especially my age, who are unable and unwilling to even consider that that would be a positive thing to do. Mm, I love that. I also want to jump in on that because it's something I feel so, so strongly about that. Very often, this is a conversation that I have with my kids all the time. I say, you know what? I'm not the perfect parent. Um, I'm a human being. And I want to tell you something. It's good that you're growing up with an imperfect parent because you should know that most of the people that you will interact with in your life are not going to be perfect people, right? <laughs> the bosses that you're going to have are not going to be perfect. And, right. you know, the people that you have to work with and your spouse, God willing, one day, they're also not going to be perfect. So, you know what? Get used to having an imperfect yeah, parent. It's really good practice. Yeah, you're welcome. Exactly. You're welcome. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if I was a perfect parent, then I wouldn't be properly trained you had to live in this world <laughs> exactly of, of you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to function yeah exactly so that that is a powerful point there, there's two things that i i see where there's so much to talk about and i see where we are running a little bit out of time but there are two things that i i, I really want to get into the first is we brought up early on 2011 social media and there's so much focus now you know you saw the netflix uh documentary what was it called the social yeah. dilemma um and I mean, listen, social media, it's not a passing fad. It's not going anywhere. Um, I don't know if we can rely on, you know, thing, rules changing or things like that, but I mean, it's here to stay. And that's the new world that we live in. So, you know, what's the light at the end of the time? Are we just sitting back and watching social media destroy the world? Or are we saying, you know, are we, are, are, is there progress in figuring out how to deal with this, which is with, of something that's in an, um, an amazing tool? I see a lot of families who come in and, and all they do is they simply blame the phone and blame social media for all of the issues. And I think that's a massive cop-out. Um, I'm going to borrow a little bit of this from uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who is all over Gary social media. <laughs> Gary V. But he, you know, nice Gary V, point. whether or not he means it, he hands out a lot of really good parenting advice at times. And he is very adamant to saying the phone is not the cause of the problem. The phone is just an easy route, uh, easy way to make the problems bigger and more pervasive. But it's not the issue that it's here. It's, it's a part, it's an integral part of everyone's life and that's not going anywhere. And that's just the way life is. It's, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a, a easy tool to be a crappy parent. Yeah. Yeah. So what, so what are the positives though? What is the, what are the positives? So, so the truth, or, or how uh, do, I guess, how do we use the, how do we, right. How do we use it? Right. So um, the first thing to recognize, I think, is that a lot of us who are in our forties and fifties, came to this technology as an adult. So for us, it's no, it's a tool. It's no different than a hammer. It's no different than something we can pick up and put aside when we're not needing it to accomplish a task. That's not the way your child relates to, the exe- to, this, to this entity at all. To them, it's an appendage. It's an appendage as like their hand. So we as, and, and I think maybe the next, the, the parent, 
the generation of younger parents now who are in their 20s who, who grew up with this will probably understand this discussion more that to simply talk to your child for whom this has become, you know, literally an appendage for them, like it's a tool for you, you're miss, you don't, you have no understanding of the role it plays in their life and in their social lives and how they relate to people. So that's the first part. The second part is that absolutely parents should have an approach and a plan when it comes to helping a developing mind develop in a healthy way in, the, in, in an environment that's as less, as least toxic as possible. And so delaying your kid's entry into that as long as possible is absolutely healthy. Absolutely it is. And in fact, more middle schools and more high schools where we are, are banning phones in the school. The school is a phone free and it's, it's a cop out to say, well, what if there's an emergency? Well, guess what? In 2021, you're never more than five feet away from someone that has a phone. So you can put the emergency thing aside. That's irrelevant. That um, is uh, through middle school into high school, is if you, the longer you can delay that sort of, you know, the, the brain being saturated with that during a very critical and fragile developmental time is better. There's no question. It's better. I'm seeing way too many 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds who have no ability to understand how to manage healthy use of this device being given the device. Right. I mean, I right. think the American Academy of Pediatrics says, look, if you can hold off until eighth grade, ninth grade, your brain is a different, is in a different place to be yeah. able to approach it emotionally in a, in a different way. I, I would like to believe like anything, you know, here we are 20, okay, we're, we're 10 years into this whole social media thing, you know, we're 10 years into it, which 10 is, plus, yeah, I hear you. right, whatever it is, but it's in, yeah. it's still in its infancy and like, like anything yeah. else, you know, like just take COVID as an example, it comes, it does terrible damage in the beginning. And then we as human beings, the way God wired us is that we figure out how to deal with things. So what I'd like to believe from an optimistic place is that yes, yeah, social media hit hard, we were unequipped to have the conversations to properly respond. So it just exploded. But now we're already at a place that we're learning about it. And therefore, now as our kids come into this world, we'll be able able to have the conversations with them because we're more comfortable. Listen, I'm comfortable on social media. My generation is comfortable on social media. And now as our kids come into it, we'll be able to have those conversations with them and teach them how to navigate that environment. And hopefully that will create a much more healthy relationship with social media. That's at least Absolutely. what I'd like to believe. I agree 100% that um, it, it, it's going to evolve in terms of how we understand our relationship with it. You know, I, I'm, I'm fond of telling people that the adolescent brain has not changed. It hasn't changed since the 50s. The it, Adolescent development is still the same process. What has changed is the toxicity of the environment that that adolescent brain is becoming exposed to at an earlier time. Interesting. The, the, the device and social media are part of that. And if you can, I mean, look, let's just compare being raised in the 80s. I mean, I was... I was a child of the 70s and the 80s. There was, it was, it, there was a lot of media silence. You, your, you, your brain was being used to figure out how to one, get yourself from point A to point B, or two, how to entertain yourself when you were there it, it, under multiple different conditions, having nothing to do with, there's, you're not being fed anything. And, and 
there's a lot to be said for the health of that kind of thing, despite the <laughs> crushing boredom <laughs> that yeah. we all experienced. Right. Um, so we need to find a way to get back to that somehow while still integrating the device into our kids' lives in a healthy way. But you're right. The fact that we're all becoming much more facile and much more confident and comfortable with it will allow us to be able to find that right mix. And we're going to have a lot more data. Data and information drives a lot of the change. We had no idea what we were doing with it in the first 10 years of it. But we're going to have a much better idea of what the impact is and how we can intervene in a healthy way without saying, without all... And certainly the, the, the answer is not going to be, you know, no child should ever, you know, have anything to do with this until they're 25 years old. That's unrealistic. So, you know, I think we have to just find, but, but I think as young parents, you have kids now, that doesn't help you. What you want to know is um, you, you want to be able to, as a household, if you're a parent now and you have kids who are now eight, nine, 10 years old, you have to sit down with your parenting partner and have an approach. Not everyone's household has to have the same approach, but you need to have an approach that your child knows. In, in our home, we do X when it comes to the phone, social media, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Whatever that is. That, a set approach, applying that approach, not that yes. just being reactive, but that 100%. we come across our kids that know there is a system in this house. Exactly. And, and, that, and if you just leave it open to just the logic of the crowd and you'll let your child's friends and their households kind of help you form it. That's not going to work to your child's advantage. I want to jump into one last, uh, one last thing before, before we wrap it up, just piggybacking <laughs> on something that, that you said before, because you pointed out the difference between parenting the way our parents parented us, which you, you said is more authoritarian. Yeah, external control, correct. External control, authoritarian. Um, but also there's something different in just the nature of the conversations. Um, I think that the way we were parented, there were a lot of things that were taboo, a lot of things that weren't discussed, a lot of things that parents were not supposed to feel comfortable speaking to their parents about. I think that that is changing and, it, and it's not changing fast. I think it should be changing a lot. Um, I want to know if you see if there are any any conversations that you're finding uh, families that are struggling coming in where you're thinking to yourself like you should be having more of these conversations. What are those conversation topics that parents should be having with their children that maybe they're not having enough of? I think parents need I think first off, before the conversations even happen, even happen, what needs to occur is modeling. Parents need to model things as much as they need to have conversations about them because uh, you know, growing up in a home the way I did and then creating the home that I ended up creating, one of the lessons that has become clear to me as I am now on the other side of parenting is that values are caught and not taught. At way, way more potently. So if you sit down and you want to have a conversation with your child, let's say about, about depression, about their, about emotions, about being able to, you know, what you're experiencing and how you're overcoming obstacles, things like that. You have to really model that kind of stuff for them. You have to model that with the relationship with your spouse and how you handle conversations that they are privy to around the house with with the uh, with the siblings with with uh, things to do with work that that you are you know interested in that stuff for you because if you if they see you modeling one thing and then almost 
And all of a sudden you want to sit down and go, hey, you know, I've noticed, you know, that you've been a lot more withdrawn and isolated. I, I really want to be able to talk about, you know, how you're feeling. And all they see is a person who doesn't communicate, reacts angry all the time, is uh, has no ability to reflect and apologize or think about their own actions after the fact. It's gonna, it's gonna not, it's gonna ring very, very empty and hollow to them. So yeah. I think before the conversations even happen, you have to really be looking at what, what am I modeling for my kids when it comes to emotional health, emotional resilience, you know, a, a value system around that. Yeah, that I think is even bigger. I think that that we saw that a lot over the last few years. With all due respect to any of the listeners out there, and I don't mean to say anything that you will take offense to, um, but parents who flipped out and went crazy when Donald Trump was elected caused their children to have massive anxiety. And, and we saw the same thing happen with COVID, that the more parents flew off the handle about things, they really caused you not to blame anyone. And obviously these are all things to be taken seriously, but parents who dealt with things in more of an even kill way saw less anxiety in their children. Uh, there's no question that kids uh, really tune in to the emotional environment in their home. But, and even if that's how you feel, but, but by the way, there's no, there's no, there's nothing wrong with yourself having a lot of feelings around those things. Cause all of this was very anxiety provoking, regardless of what side you voted on or regardless of whether, how felt, how you, how you dealt with COVID, but to be able to then have a reflexive discussion in front of your kids going, you know, even though I feel this way, I really felt I could have handled that better. I didn't really, that was not the, the best way that I could have done that. I really would. I want to do better. Yeah. So for a parent, for a parent who wants to have on their radar to always be learning more, what do you recommend? Do you recommend books? Do you recommend podcasts? How could someone improve their parenting um, you know, game? I, I, I recommend, there's a couple of books I recommend to everybody uh, when, when working on these things at home, even before you have a, a major crisis. Um, the, fir the first is uh, there's a, a, an author named Ellie Leibowitz. He is the head of the child psychology department at Yale. And he, he writes a book and I actually, and he actually gives a course to providers that I took dealing with really the concept of how the parental approach to anxiety uh, in your kids and any kind of anxiety has a lot to do with how that changes or expresses itself when they become older teenagers and adults. And that parents can have a very intentional measured and uh, let's say a cognitively uh, based approach in how they handle any of anxiety around the house with their kids that it from years of study have shown provides way, way more support and has way less likelihood of your child developing an anxiety problem. Because what we have seen in our work, almost all these issues that kids come to us when they're in high school or middle school have their root, all of it generally in some form of anxiety. And, and that anxiety sort of escalates and then becomes a lot of other things along the, along the way. And it's uh, breaking free of childhood OC, anxiety and OCD. That's the and, title and, of the book. Right. Um, and it's L-E-E-L, it's Eli, L-E-E-L-I, Leibowitz, PhD. And that is a, a book written for parents on a specific parenting approach that every parent could benefit from reading that book. Um, whether having nothing to do with whether or not your child has an anxiety disorder, 
because all kids are anxious about certain things. And it's hard to know which one of those kids are going to go on to develop a really disordered or dysfunctional or dysregulated anxiety problem. But our parenting can have a lot to do with stopping it. So that's a great resource. The other book that I get, I, I recommend about the whole issue about parenting we talked about that external control control theory is a, is, is a Glassman. He is a uh, psychiatrist, MD. And he has a book about dealing with uh, your building relationships with your adolescent. I forget the, the title, but it's a yellow and white cover. Um, and I think it's Paul Glassman. And his book is also amazing reading for people, regardless of whether you're having a problem now or not. But if you have teens or you hope to have teens at some point is a great, is a great primer in, Hey, how do parents engage in a process that is relationship building over time? Nice. Any podcasts that you recommend? Um, you know, I listen to all kinds of, uh, of different podcasts across the spectrum. A lot, a lot of the stuff that I listen to. I think that you've is, pretty much labeled Gary Vaynerchuk, your parenting expert. That's what I got. He's, he's, he's currently one of my parenting experts. I don't listen to him uh, specifically for parenting advice, but every once in a while, he says something and right. you're going, you know, he really does get it right. And, and the reason why is, if you don't know his story, he immigrated here as a child from Belarus. Yeah. Uh, and his parents, you know, came to this country. He came to this country speaking no English. And his parents basically created a business to survive. And he grew up in a household that was very much, you, you have to figure things out to get what you need. And that's, you know, including uh, his father creating a business that allowed them to thrive and live in America. And so he, he gleans a lot of lessons he is, from yeah. how his parents raised Incredible person, incredible person. Yeah. So, uh, so besides for your TikToks, are you doing any more online education? Yeah, so um, we, you know, I, I, put, I put up a lot of, a lot of the stuff on our social media feeds across the board. On, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. I am going to be creating a course based on the Ellie Leibowitz uh, um, book and his course he labels space, S-P-A-C-E, which is um, uh, supportive parenting for anxious childhood emotions. I took the entire seminar from him directly and really think there's a lot in there that all parents can benefit from when it comes to how we change our behavior as parents around uh, our kids' anxiety. So I'm going to be putting that out. We're looking forward uh, to that. This coming year, for sure. Amazing, amazing. Michael, this was really, this was incredible. And this is, this is heavy stuff, but uh, there was a lot, a lot of wisdom over here. And I really appreciate your time, your time and everything that you do and, and, and uh, much success with the Way Center and all of your incredible work. And maybe one day after this is all over, you'll be able to go and actually play some, some basketball again, and maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe join the NBA on. or something. <laughs> I, I have moved on to lower impact pursuits. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Michael. Okay, thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.